This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. Tonight's show asks the question, can the law and corporations adapt to IPC, IPCC advice in time? As everyone probably knows, the IPCC report came out last week. What struck me about it was that we have 12 years to put in place massive drawdown strategies. But the funny thing is we know what to do. We already have the tools, but it is the speed and scale of the transition to energy efficiency, electrification, zero land clearing, massive reforestation, including mangroves and kelp forests. You know the usual thing. We talk about this every Monday. Beyond Zero Emissions is right ahead of it. But we're stuck in the implementation. So what's in the way? I think the law is in the way. It's not up to speed on climate impacts of coal and gas. The corporations are in the way and the science is not getting through. So roll up your sleeves and take notes. Citizens like you who are well informed need to come together to push for the changes big enough to matter. We'll talk to David Ritter, who is head of Greenpeace in Australia, about why the law has so far not stopped coal or gas projects, which will cause havoc to the climate. Then Professor Christopher Wright from the Business School at Sydney University will show us how corporations are driving climate change. The IPCC said we could end the $260 billion subsidies we spend each year globally propping up the fossil fuel industry. And even ExxonMobil is calling for a carbon tax. Lastly, we'll talk to climate scientist Andrew King. Now, I must say, I thought reading the IPCC report would be too hard for me. The Minister for the Environment, Melissa Price, said she hadn't read it either. But most of the business people at the Energy Summit tour I went to last week paid lip service to it. But they saw a good future for coal-fired power. To 2050 at least, they said. When I asked the question, what's your timetable, they said, oh, 2050, as we'd said before. So they haven't changed anything in terms of this report, which is obviously a message for us to accelerate. They wanted lots more gas piped from Western Australia or shipped to new LNG ports and vital for firming up the intermittency of wind and solar power. They wanted moratoriums on gas lifted and permission to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight. So... I really wonder what they didn't get about the IPCC report. I think the main thing is they probably didn't read it. They should have read the, one of the sections which mentioned that economic growth will be impacted at 1.5 degrees of warming and it will be devastated at 2 degrees of warming. I think if they'd read that little paragraph, they might have spoken more honestly. When I did read the report on the train down from Sydney, I found it strangely uplifting, and I urge nerdy listeners to download it. Deborah Roberts, who is a friend of Beyond Zero Emissions and the co-chair of this uh, report, she said the decisions we make today are probably the most important in our history. 
How to get those decisions? Well, Michael Mann, very famous, very world famous scientist, climate scientist, he said it's collective pressure. The pressure on policymakers to act in our interests rather than for special interests. So let's start with David Ritter on the law. Hello, David. How are you? Good, Vivian. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Look, just very, I know this is only a bit, very short little bit of interview with you, but I'd just like to ask you three questions. What attempts have been made to get the law to stop new coal projects on the grounds of the havoc that their emissions are causing to the climate? Well, look, two kinds of um, legal avenues have been pursued, and I, I would say to your listeners, I'm a, I'm a recovering lawyer. I haven't practiced <laughs> as a lawyer for more than 10 years. Um, but really, there are two kinds of challenges, and one is the kind that is made under existing approvals processes, environmental, water, um, Indigenous rights, and that sort of thing, where um, a party will try and say that a particular project shouldn't go ahead because it's going to have um, a certain level of impact um, that that is prescribed. Um, They have worked a little bit at times, but what they are not is the kind of broad-based challenge that should be possible um, on the ground of the climate impact of a project. And then the other kind of challenge that really we're seeing more around the world, but in Australia, is a a challenge based on common law ideas of um, doctrines like uh, like the public trust. Now, so far, neither of those avenues in Australia have really produced uh, the kind of results that we need. Well, we have an Environmental Protection Act. Why does it not have a climate change trigger or is maybe climate change too new for the law to catch on? Well, so that you've nailed the inadequacy. Um, there, there isn't a climate change trigger, and the the attempt so far to use the existing provisions of um, the relevant legislation as a de facto climate change trigger haven't worked. Um, and it's not there because of the broader failure that, that you've already known in your introduction of, of our politics. You know, our politics has been captured by vested interests uh, in such a way that. Uh, we haven't seen the reforms that we need, which include a climate trigger uh, as a way of preventing any developments that are going to speed us up towards that precipice of 1.5 degrees of warming. Do, you, do the environmental organisations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, all of the conservation groups, do they have any input to policy on how that Environmental Protection Act could be firmed up? Oh, well, absolutely, but um, organisations... Um, like those you've mentioned, like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and ACF and others, we're all just, we're a movement of people. Um, And as uh, you quoted uh, Michael Mann saying, it's that pressure from organised people that are going to get the changes made. The actual process of drafting legislation and drafting regulations that give us what we need, that's very simple. The trick is in creating enough organised pressure to get the changes that we need uh, sufficient to uh, push the vested interests out of the way. Mm. Well, look, how are the fossil fuel lobbyists corrupting our democracy? This was quite a, a theme in your recent book, The Cold Truth. Well, look, what we've seen uh, is some uh, great work done by various academics. I know you're talking to Chris Wright, who's a terrific academic in the area, um, and journalists 
uh, like Graham Redfern and uh, researchers like Guy Pearce and others, which has revealed that over many years there's been a very deliberate effort made by the vested interests of the dirty fossil fuel industry to capture regulatory bodies, to infiltrate ministerial offices, to uh, influence uh, politicians and to create the perception of doubt around the science where no doubt actually exists. Um, And this has been, regrettably, a very successful campaign, uh, particularly in Australia and the US, and we're now dealing with the legacy of that. Well, just one to follow that up, something I asked you in, where listeners, I've interviewed David on a, uh, for another program, I think it'll be next week broadcast, you'll hear all about his book, The Cold Truth. But David, the last question I asked you there was about, you said the Australian public is sort of rebelling now, they realise that um, these fossil fuel companies and even the governments that support them are taking the piss. And, you know, we should wake up to that. And I think most people know what, what to do when you wake up to something like that. Can you just say a little bit of that angry well, sort of thing that you felt when you wrote that well look I think um, the, the, the particular focus was on the unlimited right given to the Adani company to drain water from our precious great artesian basin when farmers and communities are struggling for water up in Queensland and you know, there was a young barman in Queensland one night who just sort of said that he thought that they were that he was having a laugh at people and really it is, it is that kind of sense that, you know, there's, there's all this and that circus, this shenanigans that's gone on in Canberra. Our reef is bleaching. Our kelp forests are disintegrating. The Arctic is on fire. And, uh, it is just to use, uh, an expression, uh, from Australian vernacular, taking the piss. And, the great counter-movement are the tens and thousands of Australian people who are organising together to say enough is enough, we have to get beyond coal as fast as we can, we have to make oil history, we've got to stop Adani, keep the Australian bike closed to big oil. And you know the same people who are saying now that climate change is the number one uh, issue in the Wentworth by-election this weekend. This is the movement of a refusal from the Australian people to accept that our fate should be the sort of dystopia that uh, current government policy corrupted by vested interests would send us towards if it's not checked. Okay, thank you very much. And David, I'd like to thank you too for the leadership you show. I've noticed you always... Um, err on the side of being reasonable and peaceful. You never want us to get into a fight. So it's always, the door's always open to let's keep talking, and I appreciate that. So thank you very much. You're very kind of you, and thanks for all you do and for your wonderful program. Thank you. So that was David Ritter, who's the head of Greenpeace Australia, and they do a lot. And listeners, if you ever wonder what's some action to do, you might like to support Greenpeace. So we need to get new laws to prevent new coal, oil and gas projects, and it may not be that far off. Things do change, don't they? Things flip. But what about corporations getting a new narrative? Professor Chris Wright is with us from Sydney University Business School. Welcome, Chris. Are you there? Oh, yes. I can't hear you very loudly, though. Can you, you speak up a bit? Okay, is that better? That's much better, yes. Look, at the moment it's unthinkable that corporate leaders will read the IPCC report and decide to adopt a timetable of retiring their fossil fuel assets 
within the next 12 years. But in your book, Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations, you show that corporations are protecting themselves through myths and the public is lulled into thinking that they are doing something about climate change. So how can we call out those myths and actively promote the alternatives? Well, I think the first thing is to identify the actual myths themselves, and that's what we try to do in the book, uh, that, uh, for instance, the appeal that uh, business can lead on climate change, business will save us from climate change, the, this myth of corporate environmentalism, as we term it, is, is important to recognise. Otherwise, uh, consumers and citizens can, can read the media coverage, the, the sustainability reports from the businesses, and assume, well, all is in order, business is looking after it. Uh, the win-win sort of argument is all we need to, to deal with the climate crisis. So that's the first thing, I think, to, to acknowledge and recognise that the sort of the spin that we get in corporate marketing and advertising and the greenwashing uh, is just that, and uh, that we need to go much further in trying to radically decarbonise our economies. Well, some people have said it's easier to think about the end of civilization than to contemplate the end of capitalism. But I worry about that. Won't capitalism be destroyed by climate change? And I don't really understand the lack of self-interest of these corporations who are opening up new coal fields and oil and gas. Yeah, no, exactly. And, I, and the, point of, the point of that quote, I think, is, is to highlight that uh, in the popular imagination, in the sort of the dominant imaginary of business as usual, that everything will continue as it has and, and business and markets will continue as they have, uh, it is an imaginary, it is magical thinking because, as you point out, the reality is that once the climate crisis really gets going, uh, everything's up for grabs, you know, society, economies, business firms, the whole box and dice. So it is an imaginary, uh, but it, it gets at this more critical issue that, uh, some critical discussion um, that we may need to move beyond the sort of a capitalist economic system is verboten. We can't actually think about that or even talk about it, although that's probably what we need to be engaging with. So what, what's, what's driving these businesses? Why are the fossil fuel and the coal companies, the oil companies, engaged in this sort of pursuit of business as usual? I think a lot of it has to do with essentially short-term thinking that the, the executives of these companies are incentivised to maximise shareholder value in the very short term, in the three-month, the six-month profit um, reports of these companies. And those business leaders who don't achieve that short-term shareholder value maximisation are shown the door fairly quickly. So our economic system, particularly in the last 40 or 50 years where a sort of a neoliberal economic order has come to, to rule, has, um, has biased the system towards very, very short-term thinking and, and naked self-interest in terms of shareholder value. Well, look, Ian Donlop was on this program. He used to be a coal insider, and he said that we need a government of national unity. He's so exasperated by the various party positions and non-positions on climate change, and he said we need a, a government of national unity to create a timetable to decarbonise at great speed and scale. And then I heard John Hewson in Sydney say to the Wentworth electorate that any government that does not take rigorous climate action forfeits its right to govern do you think do you see something happening there people so dissatisfied with government not serving their interests that there's a kind of movement 
Well, yeah, there certainly is a movement um, amongst uh, people, I guess we might term on the more progressive end of the sort of the climate spectrum that, that get the climate science and get the, the lateness of the emergency that we're dealing with. But the unfortunate reality is there's a significant part of society that doesn't get it, either in an explicit form of sort of denial of climate science, which I think is a fairly small proportion of the population, but they are very vocal and they're funded by obvious vested interests in the fossil fuel sector. And then the vast bulk of the population um, for whom many are completely unaware of, of the climate crisis we now face and that it is an existential crisis. And and it's not their fault. I mean, it's the, it's the product of uh, a media apparatus that has been captured by corporate interests that that portrays or, or doesn't really talk about climate change very much. And when it is discussed, it's seen as sort of a partisan political issue. So we've got this this wicked problem where climate change as an existential crisis has become highly politicised and there's significant resistance um, to doing anything significant about it. And that's, that's, the, that's the real tragedy of the current political situation that in the best of all possible worlds, 30 or 40 years ago perhaps, we would have, had this as a, as a uniting issue and political parties of all political persuasions would have been on board to, to sort of engage with this in terms of decarbonising our economies. But uh, unfortunately, the history bears out that the fossil fuel sector have been very effective in politicising and creating essentially a sort of a, a political climate denial movement, which has been hugely successful. And well, the evidence for that is, is... Sorry. Go on. Well, you've said that the solution... Oh, the you, oh, come on. Sorry, there's a bit of a lag between us. Go on. I'm sorry, I was going to say the evidence for that is the election of President Trump in the US. You know, you've got uh, the most powerful political office in the world uh, now dominated by explicit climate change denial. Well, I heard him on the radio this morning at a rally in America, and honestly, it sounded to me like the Nuremberg rally. It was quite horrible. He was goading the people. They were shouting back. They all, it was hor horrifyingly, oh, I don't know, it just had that horrible, chilling feeling of this, the unleashing, uh, the forces of unreason. But you've said the solution is strengthening the kind of democracy that corporations find very threatening. And I'm sure they do find regulation very threatening, but surely they could be pulled back within regulation, even if only to save their their future. Could you explain a bit more yeah, about, well, I, uh, about that? Strengthening yeah, democracy. Uh, well, the, the, the key part of it, I think, is if we look at the, the way in which societies have changed over time in the long period of time, uh, the, the progressive political movements, whether it was the suffrage, the vote for women, uh, uh, the end of slavery, the civil rights movement, etc., etc., those big political movements occurred historically through grassroots social mobilisation of a scale that then um, was able to sort of leverage the, the, the political legislature and get laws passed that changed um, the, the sort of actions that, that, that needed to be changed. So we're starting to see that in the climate movement around fossil fuel divestment and, and climate justice and these sorts of movements. But they're not yet at the stage where they have sufficient political traction to change the political agenda. If you look at Australia, for instance, we have essentially bipartisan support, Labor and Coalition, in favour of uh, maintaining coal exports and, and probably coal-based power as well, although we get to the Labor Party come out explicitly um, opposed to that. But there is generally a sort of a political consensus in favour of 
fossil fuel-based energy, despite the, the glaring scientific evidence now that suggests we need to get away from fossil fuels as quickly as we possibly can. Mm. So there are some positive signs around social mobilisation and, and political change in the climate space, but unfortunately uh, the, the powers that be are still captured by those, those vested fossil interests and the time frame is becoming, as the IPCC reports have shown recently, the time frame is becoming rapidly uh, shorter and shorter. Mm. I beg to differ with you on that bipartisan business. I think Mark Butler, who turns up at every meeting I go to, he's there, he's listening. I think he'd make a fabulous um, climate minister. Maybe not fabulous, but good enough to get going with the problem. He certainly respects the science. Oh yeah, look, I'm, I'm not saying there aren't, you know, uh, uh, good voices, people of, uh, on the right wavelength on the Labor side of politics, uh, that get the climate crisis and Mark would be one of those. The problem is getting a, a, a distinct policy position from the Labor Party as a potential future federal government that would not only, um, put the kibosh on, on new coal-fired power, which frankly isn't economic anyway, uh, but also start to seriously look at, uh, limiting uh, any new coal uh, extraction mm. and possibly also have to consider coal exports, particularly thermal coal exports, because we are uh, the second biggest exporter of thermal coal in the world. We're the biggest exporter of coal in the world, if we include metallurgical coal. Mm. Uh, so we, we punch above our weight, unfortunately, in exporting uh, fossil fuel emissions to the rest of the world. That's right. Ian Dunlop was on this show a few weeks ago saying we are sixth in the world in terms of emissions if we count the exports. But listen, I want to come back to something you said in your book about Martin Luther King. You said people say often your um, you, your book has a sort of a negative or a gloomy sort of aspect. But then you said, well, Martin Luther King made his famous I have a dream speech to oppressed people. But we in the rich West, we are living the dream right now and climate change has nothing to offer but a nightmare, really. So people talk about how solutions, well, the circular economy, the ecological economy, and with nature at the centre. What economic model for the future would you teach your students about? Well, the, the key message, I think, is that we almost need to invert the, the hierarchy that we create through traditional economics. And by that, I mean, if we talk about the sort of the triple bottom line type analogy uh, or the three pillars of sustainability, which are the popular cliches in this sort of space, they focus very much upon the idea of uh, economic society and the environment as as possibly sort of three equal pillars that we have to balance or, or uh, in, in mainstream financial sort of jargon, it's the economy first and society second and environment as a sort of an afterthought. But what we really need to do is invert that because the reality is that we need a functioning, stable environment uh, to provide the context, the clean air, the clean water, the resources that we need to function as a society within which an economy operates. Unfortunately, Really, and particularly exaggerated since the rise of neoliberalism in the 70s, we've inverted that hierarchy where the economy comes before else, uh, before everything else. And so the problem now is we see in, in the conventional sort of financial jargon that the environment is somehow something that we can take or leave, that we can somehow be separate from the environment, from nature. Unfortunately, you know, the laws of physics and chemistry and biology don't really care about economic nostrums. And as we're seeing with the IPCC findings, uh, the climate crisis reveals that we have a, a, a breakdown in the sort of basic functioning of the planet, which we have created through 
fossil fuel extraction through uh, endangerment of, of species, through upsetting the nitrogen phosphorus cycle. So we are fundamentally changing sort of the chemistry of, of our planet in ways that are fundamentally detrimental. And the new economics has really got to put nature and a functioning environment at the very centre of any sort of analysis uh, and possibly think about how the society depends on and operates with that environment. And then lastly, perhaps think about how economic relations exist within society. Could you just elaborate on that a bit more? What about circular economy or steady state economy? These are terms bandied around, but I don't see how we'd get there. No, well, look, I, I, I think there are real problems in the sort of the roadmap by which you get from where we are today, which is a global economy driven by cheap fossil fuels, which assumes compound uh, economic growth ad infinitum per annum, forever and ever and ever. That's the assumption. Uh, how do we get from there to uh, a, a, a truly sustainable economy operating within um, an environment which has which satisfies various planetary boundaries. Uh, and the problem is getting there is, is a political task that at the moment seems to be beyond us. And that's largely because the, the dominant sort of ideology is economy before all else. So to get there, we actually need to challenge that fundamental ideological assumption that the economy is the be-all and end-all of, of human endeavour and get back to an idea that uh, the, the environment comes first creating sustainable societies within which sustainable economies can be created. So that's a huge task because that's basically unpacking a whole lot of assumptions around which our contemporary society and business world operates. I mean, it challenges the assumptions of sort of consumerism and affluenza and all those sorts of things that we, we now take for granted, that we can jump on a plane and go on an international holiday whenever we like, that we can, um, you know, get access to cheap energy whenever we like. We're living now in an age of consequences where all of those sort of assumptions will be fundamentally challenged, not just because of political action, but because of changes in the natural environment. Mm. Well, some of the people who are challenging it, are, um, we'll hear from them at six o'clock tonight, some interviews I did with the frontline action on coal people. They're mostly young people, but one was in his 90s, a Kokoda Trail veteran. Um, they stopped the coal trains at Newcastle and the media hardly reported on it. I went up to the court, I think I was I don't know if there were any other media there's certainly no television or anything like that and uh, Victorians banned fracking uh, and the corporations just grumbled but then we rolled on I wonder all of these protests that you know these mass, mass movements or small groups of very daring people locking on to things like the coal trains I wonder how threatened corporations feel by these protests do you, you you must be knowledgeable about that is that is that a big threat to them or just like a mosquito bite look I think it is a big threat in the sense that these protests and more than that, I guess, actions like the movement for fossil fuel divestment, uh, these combined basically challenge the social licence of these big resource companies and governments to sort of operate the way they have. It's saying enough is enough. We, 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 we want to change this situation. This is a crisis. We're willing to put our bodies on the line to, to confront these, these systems of extraction and, and, uh, and climate uh, problems that you're creating. So I think the more of these actions we see, they have a symbolic political value in that they challenge 
the sort of reputation of these big corporations and government decisions as a way in which democracy can be sort of taken back by the grassroots by by ch- uh, challenging the centralization of decision making so the more of those little protests we see the more of the sort of the, the marches the more actions around divestment of fossil fuels these combined create a challenge to the social legitimacy of fossil fuel based energy yeah well we often hear that um, Australia only contributes 1% to global emissions and journalists don't seem to challenge that. Um, we hear that we could have carbon tax pain with no climate gain or that if we don't export the coal, oil and gas, someone else will. So the only one who spoke back to that from, that I know is a Bangladeshi climate scientist who said to us on the radio that um, the top 90 or so companies that continue to explore and drill for coal, oil and gas are climate criminals. So in a, I want to know from you, is Australia just a bit player or are we climate criminals? Well, I think uh, if you look at our role in the export of coal in particular, and also our political role uh, in buttressing the sort of decisions that are coming out of Trump in America, you know, these these sort of arguments from our political leaders, or maybe we don't have to really um, focus on the Paris Climate Agreement, these sort of things, they have a powerful symbolic effect as well. I think we probably are becoming climate criminals. In a sense, we are the providers of significant fossil fuel uh, reserves to the rest of the world. That, that argument that I've heard several times, well, if we don't dig up and export the coal, someone else will, is, of course, the, the, the epitomous uh, drug dealer's defence. You know, if we don't sell the drugs, someone else will. So uh, as a moral and ethical sort of position, I think that's highly suspect. Uh, and uh, we need to sort of bring morals and ethics back into this debate, I think, because of the impact that we're having as a global citizen on, uh, on this crisis. And, yes, uh, our, um, our emissions, our aggregate emissions domestically might be that 1% or 1.5% of global emissions. But as you pointed out earlier... Ian Dudloff's point out when you factor in the exports, uh, we're a significant contributor, way, way beyond our population, of course, but even in the aggregate, we're a significant contributor to global emissions. And then the last point I'd just make there on your comment, that, that reference to that famous study that found that if you look at the history of cumulative greenhouse gas emissions from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution up to about the, the present day, up to about the, the 1990s, 2000s, there's a relatively small number of carbon major companies and state-owned enterprises that are responsible for around two-thirds of those total emissions. And, you know, they're the usual suspects. They're the big fossil fuel companies and, and nations which are fossil fuel reliant. Uh, they are the significant sort of perpetrators of this, this crime against the environment and against humanity. Oh, thank you for giving that very detailed explanation. Look, the IPCC says it will be hard to persuade governments to spend billions to save trillions, even though the boost to the global economy from taking action now would be, they give you this number, 26 trillion by 2030. Mm. Well, I don't know how they figure that all out, but 26 trillion saved, you know, if we take action now. And 2030 is not so long or far away, 12 years. So governments spend that kind of money when they're threatened by war. I wonder, just in a nutshell, what do you think is the impediment now? The, the major impediment is the short-term thinking and the focus on the present and discounting the future in favour of the present. So uh, we have essentially a, a political system that has been captured by powerful corporate interests. They want to maintain the current sort of existing system where there is no real regulation on their activities, where they can avoid tax, these sorts of things. 
uh, and they've been able to um, create a sort of political apparatus which is not going to challenge them in that regard. It's going to do their bidding. And again, I'd suggest as evidence, just look at what's happened in the U.S., the way in which the U.S. government, um, particularly the Republican Party, has really been captured by climate change denial, and that's explicit in the person of the president and, and the senior appointment he's made, the head of the EPA, etc., etc. So we have a, a very explicit example there of how fossil fuel-based energy has captured the political regime. Unfortunately, we see that right across the world, you know, in, as is happening in Brazil at the moment, uh, as was the case in, in Canada and Europe. Uh, this, um, this political system now seems to be locked into business as usual, and that's the biggest challenge we face, trying to break out of that assumption and trying to shift towards a much more sustainable future path. Well, just before I let you go, you mentioned Brazil. What about um, the poorer countries? I saw you speaking at an ASEAN conference in Sydney as well, and there are a lot of <clears throat> underdeveloped countries who need, um, you know, they need development still, they need growth. Um, have you any comments to make about, about their situation? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a devilish situation for them because of, a lot of the developing countries, of course, are in parts of the world where they're going to be exposed to the most extreme climate events. If we look at the equatorial zones of the world, Asia, the Middle East, um, parts of Latin and Central America, uh, they are going to be subject to the most extreme weather events in terms of storms and flooding and extreme heat. But on top of that, because of their poverty, um, they're also more exposed to uh, the extremes of weather. They're less able to adapt to apply the sort of money and technology, technology that's needed to adapt to these weather extremes. So they're going to be particularly impacted by climate effects. They clearly need um, development and, and prosperity to try and respond to uh, those sort of challenges. Uh, but the message, the model that they're being given by the World Bank is essentially the same model that we've followed, which is fossil fuel-based energy, which is just contributing to the problem. So somehow we need to sort of develop a model of economic development, which is a much more sustainable model based on renewable energy. Mm. Well, listeners can't attend your courses, but what's your last message to the listeners about just some... Uh, path to take or way to think? Just your last message. Well, the, the final message I'd make is we need to have conversations about the climate crisis. We all need to get out there and start talking about it. And I'm starting to see this now just in public discussion that people are, are much more explicit in coming forward and talking about climate change. And we've got to break through this taboo of silence that it's some partisan political issue we can't talk about. Because the more of us we talk about it, the more likelihood we have of, of changing the politics. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. So that was Professor Christopher Wright in Sydney at the University of Sydney Business School, and I'm very grateful to him. His book is called Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations. You'll remember it now, listeners. Now, I think we'll just have a little music break, and then we're going to speak to a real climate scientist, Andrew King. <laughs> Wings are 
attached to me Did you notice it? The day is breaking Oh, it's breaking into bits Broken hearted people Where everything needs fixing it Did you notice it? Did you notice in the ground today Down in the ground where the dirt is dry And cracked right to the core Cracked right there to the core The day is breaking Oh, it's breaking into piles Smashing branches Oh, cracking all the tiles Did you notice it? The wind is high Beyond Zero Emissions Radio Show and that was really lovely. Thank you to Kurt who's on the panel tonight. So now welcome to Andrew King. He's uh, from Melbourne University and oh, have we got him? Um, uh, So we've looked at the law and the corporations and how they could be more helpful. It doesn't sound like they will be more helpful unless they're pushed but the message from scientists needs to be getting through to them more efficiently. So I have a real climate scientist with us, Dr. Andrew King, and he has read the IPCC report or the summary, and I'd like him to fill us in. Welcome, Andrew. Yes, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for making the time for us. I know you're very, very busy, and I just want to get a little overview of the IPCC report from you. The message I got from the report was that every bit of warming matters. Can you tell us why? Yeah, that's, um, I think that's the main message, really. Um, what we know uh, is that we've had one degree of global warming today, human-induced global warming, and um, this 1.5 degree limit would, uh, you know, even if we achieve global warming, that limit, uh, that will already impose a strain on many natural systems, like the coral reefs, and even just another half a degree of global warming beyond that to two degrees, which is the main thing that this IPCC report was studying the difference between the one and a half and the two degree limits um, put forward by the Paris Agreement, um, that, that would make a big difference still just beyond 1.5 to two degrees. 
So even though we're only talking about half a degree of global warming, that's uh, a lot more energy in the climate system and much um, worse impacts of climate change, uh, especially to, to things like the coral reefs. Yes, that was a big surprise to me because in the earlier Paris conference, the small island nations really insisted on this because that's the absolute um, 1.5 seems to be the amount keeping below that would preserve their islands. But but now it seems from this report that every species would be affected. And I was just telling listeners that insects, for example, in that report, just a tiny example I saw, um, they they studied 105,000 species, but they found that insects would lose their climatically determined range. What examples stood out for you reading that report? Um. There's, yeah, there's a lot of studies packed into this report, mm. um, and it, there's a, uh, they've done a great job synthesising all of these results. But I think the, the most striking thing to me was the, the impacts on the coral reefs. So at 1.5 degrees of global warming, uh, we project that 70 to 90% of coral reefs would be lost. Um, but at at two degrees of global warming, it's actually more than 99% of mm. coral reefs would be lost. Uh, it would essentially, um, as an ecosystem, um, just be lost. Um, so that's a really big benefit of keeping global warming to the 1.5 degree limit if we can, that we, we can preserve um, the coral reefs. Mm. Well, there's a lot to be done in that 12 years um, that they give us the window, you know, which I, li- I like that because it looks like a timetable. It looks like a plan, even though governments, of course, have not stepped in behind it yet. But there's a lot to be done in restoring carbon sinks. And the report yeah. says that all the pathways use CO2 removal. Can you expand on what that means? Right. So uh, at the moment we're... Uh, emitting lots of greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. But to, in order to achieve 1.5 degrees of global warming um, without just a huge reduction in emissions immediately, we would have to um, actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere in the latter half of, of this century more than we put into the atmosphere. Um, so that we know that this can be done. I mean, this is essentially what trees and plants do, of course. Mm. In, when they grow, they take carbon out of the atmosphere when they photosynthesize. Um, we'd have to do this on a large scale um, in order to keep global warming to very low levels, we, we think. Um, well, that's what the majority of the scientific community thinks. Mm. And this is um, this is something where... There are technologies that can do this on a small scale, uh, remove carbon from the atmosphere, but we would have to be able to do this on a a much larger scale than is possible at the moment. So this is assuming technological developments uh, beyond what we have at the moment. What do you think of kelp um, as a sort of deep ocean way of removing CO2? I think Tim Flannery wrote that uh, in his book last year and he he envisaged these massive kind of kelp farms out in the international waters. Yeah, um, so yeah, I remember Tim Flannery talking about this. Um, there's, it, it's likely that we would need multiple ways of um, extracting carbon to, 
to achieve large-scale negative emissions. Um, so we probably need um, other technologies as well um, as uh, afforestation and, and possibly a large role for kelp, if, uh, um, uh, as Tim Flannery is advocating for. Okay, well, what, what, just tell us a little bit about what your special area is. You're in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Change Research, and I'd just like to know a bit about your work. And, of course, you must have been awaiting this report. What, um, you know, from your point of view, from the actual specialty that you're in, what impressed you about the report so far? So uh, I'm mainly interested in climate extremes and how they're changing. Uh, due to climate change. So I look at heat extremes and rainfall extremes and how uh, climate change is influencing those, um, especially in Australia. And uh, we uh, did some uh, studies that were um, used in the report to look at Australian extremes under 1.5 and 2 degrees of global warming. Um, so we found, for example, that for heat extremes, um, events like the, the angry summer, Australia's hottest summer on record, they would be commonplace um, in a 1.5-degree world and they would be um, unusually cool events in a 2-degree world. So we're finding significant increases in the likelihood of these extreme heat events um, that obviously have big impacts for Australia and um, also possibly in um, the likelihood of drought conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we'd expect some increase in those uh, at 1.5 or at 2 degrees of global warming. So there are, um, yeah, I think what interested me both, most in the report was changes in um, extremes that we could experience at 1.5 and 2 degrees of global warming around the world and what that would mean for our ecosystems. Yeah, well, I I wonder what's... You mentioned how many reports were sort of synthesised into this big report, and I wonder what your feeling is as a scientist, um, the political response where people say, we're not bound by these IPCC uh, recommendations and just flicked away as if it was just nothing. What, what, what was your response to that? Um. Well, uh, so, um, yeah, so this was a report that took a lot of effort to to make and it was commissioned by the IPCC, which um, signatories like Australia um, asked for this report to be done. Um, So that includes the Australian government. Um, So we obviously hoped that... um, politicians and policymakers would use the report in future decision making Um, so yeah it's sometimes disheartening if if, um, people dismiss the report Uh, yeah well, I, I, I hope you're not too disheartened because I think this research has got to be unstoppable. We need this, don't we? And I know the um, uh, people at the Tyndall Centre, for example, are even critical of the IPCC process as being too conservative. It, it could be a bit more out there even. But if um, you mustn't, mustn't be disheartened and give up because things will change. Those politicians will be removed from the um, platforms of history and you know, your research will still be very needed. But my last question is to you about 
the sort of the language and the way we communicate all of this. The um, co-chairman of the IPCC was a man called Jim Skier, and he said, we have pointed out the enormous benefits of keeping well below 1.5 degrees. We show it can be done within the laws of physics and chemistry. The final tick box, tick box is political will. So that was his quote, and I, th- I wonder if this is not like the engineers who told NASA to delay the Challenger spaceflight because of the freezing conditions. Do you remember that? And they, they, there was this big advice given to NASA, don't, don't um, launch that rocket today. And I think there was a kind of group afterwards they inquired into what happened because the mission, of course, that just um, burned up. And they crashed. Mm. I mean, they said there was a group thinking there and the right information didn't get through and the decision was made by someone in an office further away. And, of course, those six or seven astronauts died. So I, th- I feel that's a kind of analogy for the situation where we're getting all this fantastic information and it could be even more fantastic if, um, you know, more uh, diversity, more greater diversity of people can't fit into it. But it, there's this, just this blockage between the information coming in and the people receiving it. They're just blocking their ears or unable to process it. Do you think there's something wrong between scientists and business and government people, they're not speaking the same language. Is that is that a problem that you notice? Um, so I, I have to admit I don't remember the Challenger incident. I, I was I think I was born after that happened. Um. So, um, but I, there is certainly um, sometimes a, a disconnect between. Um, the, the way that scientists view climate change and I think how almost everyone else actually views climate change, um, um, including uh, policy makers sometimes. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure um, what the best way to address that would be, actually. Um, I think scientists do reasonably well at making... Um, the implications of global warming quite clear, and we try and give a good um, quantitative um, analyses of, of how climate will change under different levels of global warming. So I think the information is there, and um, it's up to uh, government to decide what the, the next steps are. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad you're so <laughs> polite about it because I I, I really feel there's a, a gap there. It needs to be put in some sort of language that they will understand, which doesn't mean that journalists get in and sensationalise it. Um, but um, for listeners, I hope you do read the summary of the IPCC report. I managed to do it. It wasn't too hard to read. But I'd really like to thank you um, for coming on the show, Andrew, and and opening it up a little bit for us. We'll certainly come back to it and look at it in more detail next year. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. So that was the show tonight. Um, I'm sorry for that little glitch in the middle with the telephones. But thanks to our guests, David Ritter from Greenpeace, Professor Christopher Wright from Sydney University Business School and Dr Andrew King from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate System Science at Melbourne University. Thanks also to Alvin at University of New South Wales and Vardihi from the Climate Media Centre who helped me find the talent. It was quite hard to find someone who was free to talk 
tonight. This will not be our last show on the IPCC report, which I hope you're now downloading as we speak, because I think we need to we need to be trying to get this to a wider audience. Um, now, if you're into some in for some climate action this week. Um, I think you might like to go and see a wind farm. Uh, if you go have a look up on the website of the Clean Energy Council, you can see all the wind farms that are available. They're having an open day on Sunday, the 21st of October. Um, the ones in Victoria are Bald Hill, Cape Nelson or Mount Jellybrand. And I think if you, you've been a bit fascinated by wind power and you've never really seen a, a wind farm in action or a real wind turbine, how huge they are nowadays, I think it might be quite inspiring and take the children because these things impress children and they can see the future in that. If you are in the federal seat of Wentworth, you might consider um, not voting for anyone who doesn't have a reasonable climate policy. I won't say anything more than that. But it is the top issue in Wentworth, which is heartening for all of us that climate change is now the top issue for one group of people. It, uh, if you would like to hear a webinar on Thursday this week, 18th of October at 8pm, you can go to Zoom and search for Justin Borowitz. And he's speaking about negative emissions. And I'll ask Roger to put the link to that uh, Zoom webinar on our BZE webpage. You can um, join in and participate. It's about negative emissions. I think, listeners, I don't know any of you personally, but honestly, I think it's up to all of us. If all our speakers have said, it's individuals and people who get excited by something or angry about something who start doing things you can join up with the big organizations or you might just like to take action yourself go and see the wind farm join the webinar um, and send the ipcc report to your mp so i'd like to thank tonight kurt who produced the show roger who will have the podcast up on our website tomorrow that's the bze.org website and my name is vivian langford if you stay tuned to 3CR now, you'll hear the half-hour program that I made up in Newcastle about the court case of the people who stopped the coal trains. You might remember I interviewed one of them uh, about a month ago, and then they've been to court. I think it's really fascinating. That it was really lovely to speak to them, and it was a pouring rain day, and there's a lot of noise in the background of buses and rain and thunder. But I love talking to those people, and I hope you stay tuned and listen to them. Let us know what you think at radio team at bze.org.au and join us next Monday at 5pm. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au.